0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I am a host for the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Seiji Shirane about his book, Imperial Gateway, Colonial Taiwan and Japan's Expansion in South China and Southeast Asia, 1895 to 1945. The book which is out from cornell university press in 2022 demonstrates that colonial taiwan was an imperial center in its own right a political social and economic hub for the southern expansion of japan's empire led by officials with agendas that didn't always match with those of the government in tokyo in addition to this contribution to the study of japanese empire specifically imperial gateway highlights two aspects of the history that are often underappreciated in the anglophone literature first Shidana expands the aperture of his narrative beyond bilateral Sino-Japanese relations to encompass a more dynamic multilateral milieu that includes colonial Taiwan, the region's Western powers, and the Japanese, uh, what the Japanese called Sekimin, the overseas Taiwanese uh, subjects of the empire. Second, Shirane pays particular attention to the agency, not just of the government general installed by Japan to rule over Taiwan, but also to those overseas Taiwanese who were both wooed by the Japanese to advance their imperial ambitions and also pursued their own autonomous interests. All right, Dr. Shane, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining
2: us. Oh, thanks for having me, Nathan.
1: Yeah, so I wanted to uh, start off by asking you how it is that you became interested in the project that became Imperial Gateway.
2: Sure. So, uh, just my personal background is I'm, you know, second, third generation Japanese American. Uh, I was fortunate enough to grow up with four uh, grandparents uh, that I was very close to, who all experienced World War II. Uh, so, really, since uh, since I was little, I, I was fascinated by Japan's defeat, uh, the wartime period. Um, But a a big turning point, I would say, in my personal and academic life, Uh, I was an undergrad at Yale, really interested in Japanese history, but I had a two-week exchange program uh, in Hong Kong in 2002. And we spent two days in Guangzhou. I had never been to mainland China, and I got to talk to university students there, and really for the first time um, saw firsthand how much anti-Japanese sentiment, and how much, uh, understandably, you know, um, uh, uh, war memory and and Japan's occupation uh, uh, still resonated. So. You know, I went back to undergrad. I, I didn't have Chinese, but uh, you know, my my undergrad mentors at the time, Chris Hill and Lori Watt, um, we all really noted how in the J- Japan Empire field, uh, most of it is Japan centered, Japanese language centered, and. You know, wouldn't it be nice to have Chinese or Korean? So uh, I did a two-year uh, teaching fellowship with Yale China, where I, I went back to Guangzhou and taught two years of English there, uh, with the goal of becoming fluent in Chinese. And it, it really was a formative, transformative time for me. And and that got me on the road of wanting to go back to grad school uh, to do Sino-Japanese relations. Uh, and then, you no, know, I wanted to think about. Uh, sort of new, fresh ways to approach modern Sino japanese relations uh, beyond Manchuria, beyond Shanghai and the main treaty ports, and uh, uh, this was another fortuitous, um, uh, um, you know, event. In that, after my first year at Princeton, uh, I I spent time in Taiwan, in mainland China, in Tokyo, uh, and I really saw uh, the massive amounts of accessible uh, Japanese colonial archives, publications um, uh, in Taiwan, and also a really burgeoning field of Taiwanese history that really is, is, in Chinese, and then, you know, not really made aware of in, in Anglophone scholarship. So uh, I thought of Taiwan as really, uh, at the time, really a, a gateway. The Japanese there were thinking constantly about South China and Southeast Asia and and writing policy, writing publications. And, and that was really the sort of impetus to uh, look at Sino-Japanese relations. And I'm not a Southeast Asianist, but really extending into Southeast Asia, was part of this project. So I had to include that uh, uh, in the end as well. So that's a long, long winded way of talking about how, how I came to the project.
1: Well, yeah, no, thank you for uh, laying that out. And I think it's, uh, you know, I was struck by the fact that it probably would have been quite easy to sort of run away from the initial hostility even if it wasn't directed at you but the sort of historical enmity and the the problems of historical memory uh, rather than kind of rushing in to embrace it as the problematic that would define your career so that was really sort of an interesting for me an insight having read the book uh, it's sort of seeing where your head was in doing it um, so with that in mind i want to uh, jump into some of the things that you lay out in the intro and in the conclusion um, and, the, of course, you know, you've know you talked about how sort of in a personal sense, uh, Taiwan has been this sort of gateway. Um, but you talk about it in the book as both an imperial gateway and specifically as kind of the southern gateway for the Japanese empire um, as it's expanding southward. And this is really central to the book, obviously, as the title indicates. Um, and so you're writing uh, in the introduction this uh You include this thing, uh, you say no other Japanese colony played a more critical role in informal and formal southern expansion. And in chapter one, and I'm jumping ahead here a little bit in saying this, but you also write that in the same vein, Taiwan was not a passive colony at the periphery of the empire, but an imperial center in its own right. Simultaneously, you point out that the Japanese government, uh, the government general in Taiwan lacked the financial, logistical and other resources that it wanted. And it was hampered by uh, intra-imperial rivalries, conflicting agendas in you know, with Tokyo and Manchuria, etc. Um, and this is where you bring in this sort of, I guess you'd call them the protagonists, I guess, of, of the book in some ways, this overseas Taiwanese community. Uh, so... Who who are these people? What do you, who are you referring to? And in the broadest terms, why are they so important to your story of proxy colonialism? Uh, in other words, what is their position in this expanding empire?
2: Okay, great. So I'll I'll start by trying to give an overview of sort of the uh, you know what I'm trying to do as a methodological and historiographical intervention in Japanese empire studies. One is there's been really excellent work on Japanese. Manchuria Japanese Korea Japanese Taiwan um, over especially you know the last couple of decades uh, um, that use Japanese Chinese Korean uh, multilingual um, uh, archives uh, but I really do see most of these colonial pro- uh, uh, studies as being concerned with bilateral um, uh, uh relations between the Japanese metropole and the colony. So what's the impact of the metropole on the colony and the colony's impact on the metropole, whether it's total empire. Uh, and then you also have sort of separate from that, more on the China side, really interest in semi-colonial Taiwan, uh, semi-colonial China. What, what's the role of Western and Japanese informal empire? So no, no, um, full colonies in, in the, the uh, uh, treaty ports, but extraterritorial rights, uh, most significantly Shanghai, Tianjin. Uh, so, so that those studies are sort of separate from what's going on in Korea and Taiwan. And then lastly, there's oftentimes sort of a pre-war and then Wartime—I wouldn't say divide—but many of these books on the colonies go up to 1937 or start from 1937, uh, or you know, it's on wartime Sino-Japanese uh, uh, war or wartime Southern advance uh, from the 40s onwards. And I really think the colonial, the informal, semi-colonial, and the wartime really. Are so interconnected and need uh, need to be studied together, and that's what I try to do in the in the fifty year period. So, looking at the Japanese Empire, you know, I I came up with this term Imperial Gateway, which can apply to Korea, and and we have such great Koreanists and Japan uh, specialists of Korea that show how important Korea is in in terms of informal and formal expansion into Manchuria. So there are many parallels and differences that we can talk about uh, of Korea being a northern gateway, whereas Taiwan is a southern gateway. In uh, the intro, I'm saying, look, it was not destined that Taiwan was going to be the, the southern gateway when Japan took over uh, the Ryukyus and Okinawa in the 1870s. They called Okinawa Nanmon or the southern gateway. But that switched to the tension of Taiwan in the 1890s, uh, Okinawa was no longer a southern gateway for formal or informal empire. And then even Micronesia, which is part of the Nanshin in the 1910s and 20s, I argue does not play uh, uh, nearly the large role, especially not in China, but even in Southeast Asia, as Taiwan does. So we can talk about some of those comparisons. And then, lastly, uh, the cha- the biggest challenge is: well, why? You know, how does this book? Uh, why would it speak to, or why would it be relevant to other studies of global empires? And I'm of course, inspired by um, and in dialogue with uh, uh, amazing works on the British Indian Ocean, uh, the role of India in you know uh, further expansion to Southern Africa, Southeast Asia, etc. And I do think Imperial Gateway uh, uh, can uh, apply to India, Indochina, pretty much every empire where a colony has neighboring regions can play the role of the imperial gateway. But uh, I would say that the Taiwanese and the overseas Taiwanese is what differentiates and makes Japan's imperial gateway or the Taiwan case unique from both Korea as well as India. Now, uh, it's a great question. Um, Taiwanese, overseas Taiwanese, I tried to really... clearly define what I mean by these terms, uh, both in the, you know, the the uh, uh, not the preface, but, you know, note on terms and, and then in the intro and uh, chapter. So I'm not referring to Taiwanese national identity or, or you know, national consciousness as we do uh, uh, when we th- talk about Taiwanese today, part of the ROC, but really it's what the Japanese um, decide is the legal and political term. Now, this is a Han-centric uh, uh, definition where indigenous Taiwanese uh, derogatively called Seban or banjin or, you know, uh, aborigines at the time do not count as uh, Taiwanese subjects until much later in the 1910s and 20s. So Taiwanese is for the political term of Han ethnic Han Chinese registered in Taiwan who are Japanese colonial subjects. They are Japanese nationals. But as we know, like with Koreans, they are secondary uh, in class, second class, they're not equal to the ethnic Japanese citizens uh, without the same rights to education, welfare, um, wages, etc., now, when we talk about the overseas Taiwanese, this is this too is a pretty problematic term. And it is my term or my best English translation for what the Japanese use as seki uh, mean, um, which literally means those registered in Taiwan or Taiwan's family register. So what I mean by overseas Taiwanese, and, and it, it encompasses a wide range of people, is literally those who Have Taiwanese subject to a Japanese nationality who reside overseas in China or Southeast Asia. Now, uh, uh, you know, uh, we'll probably talk about this in chapter one and two. Many of these were t- local Chinese in South China who naturalized uh, into Taiwanese subjects, and I will be the first to say that very few of them call themselves overseas Taiwanese or Taiwanese. We know that identity is multiple and subjective. You can be a New Yorker and a Mahanite while also being an American and a Japanese-American simultaneously, you know, but the legal and and cultural identity of these people on the ground, they might call themselves Fujianese, Hokkien, Taiwanese, South Chinese. And and so I'm not saying this is how they see their identity, but this is the best way to uh, analytically uh, uh coherently talk about Taiwanese and overseas Taiwanese subjects for this book
1: yeah, so it it strikes me that in a way, what you're doing here is with this sort of etic definition rather than an emic definition, right is is do, is doing a little bit of that seeing like a state thing, right? looking at like the the community as defined by Japan, which is of course you know the sort of the the empire that that is moving the politics. Um, But as as I think we'll discuss uh, in some detail later, of course, uh, those are people with their own subjecthood uh, and subjectivity uh, and you know, just because the Japanese define them in one way, it doesn't mean that that's what they are, right, which you've already sort of gestured to. Um, so before we get into that stuff, I do want to uh, touch on a little bit of the sort of background history that you lay out in Chapter One, opening a gateway into China. So this is the first chapter in so part one of the book. The book has two parts, um, each of which is three chapters. Um, and this first part, overseas subjects as gateway actors, uh, is an examination of first the acquisition of Taiwan as the spoils of war, then its development, uh, and then, and of course these overseas Taiwanese as what, the, uh, what you call special intermediaries as part of Japan's uh, ambitious Southern advance. So some of the history I think is, is familiar to some of our audience, but Uh, So maybe we can pare it down to the importance, um, specifically, of the the Xiamen incident as a kind of turning point um, in how Japan begins to enlist the help of the overseas Taiwanese and how they become uh, important to this story.
2: Great. And I'll I'll try to connect this back to your uh, initial question about... You know this not contradiction, but the tension of Japan takes over Taiwan in 1895. But as you said, you know they lack the financial, logistical, and resources. Do they even have room and time to think about further expansion? Uh, So I'm going to try to answer how the overseas Taiwanese become uh, uh, pivotal in this in this both informal and later formal expansion. So um, many many people know that you know, colonizing Taiwan uh, as much as important symbolically and, and, and for status reasons for the Japanese to show that they were, you know, one of the imperial powers or, or on the level of the Western imperial powers, um, there was fierce resistance, violent resistance. And so the military and uh, economic costs were, were heavy that the Japanese uh, a few years into colonial rule thought uh, it, it's draining our coffins. Is it worth even keeping this island? We might want to sell it to the French or another Western power that's interested in the island. Uh so then how how do how do they even start to look at South China? So the Taiwan government generals, those who are appointed from from uh Tokyo, uh, oftentimes are Japanese army or navy leaders. From the start, they think, look, uh South China has such um uh, long historical, economic, cultural connections. It's only natural for us to try to go from Taiwan into South China uh, uh, economically, geostrategically. Uh, but again, th- they don't have Japanese settlers, soldiers to send to South China. And and meanwhile, you know, more uh, Japanese businessmen and settlers are more interested in northern expansion into you know going into Korea, going into Manchuria or Shanghai. Um, so the Shaman Incident in 1900 is interesting because from 1897 to 1900, uh, during these uh, few years, uh, it's local Chinese and South China's treaty ports that actively seek out and apply for uh, Taiwanese subjecthood. And talking about agency, local agency, how it's not just dictated by the Japanese uh, imperialists, um, they realize, as they've long realized since the 1840s, that, foreign nationality of an imperial power allows economic and legal benefits. So um, it's at a time where the British and the Americans are cracking down on a lot, giving uh, uh, ethnic Chinese, um, even if they have British or American nationality uh, rights to extraterritoriality. Um, they're doing that because they want, uh, you know, better relations with uh, Chinese authorities, but they're also doing that because of anti-Chinese uh, uh nationality and racial sentiment. Uh, The Japanese are going in the reverse direction, saying, well, if they're local Chinese businessmen, wealthy people, well-connected, uh, uh, you know, government leaders who want Taiwanese subjecthood, and it, this is a very cheap way to just increase our Taiwanese and Japanese population in an area. Again, we don't have a lot of resources, but if they want to apply for it, we'll get. So basically, handing out Taiwanese subjecthood to thousands of uh, uh local Chinese. So the majority of the so-called overseas Taiwanese become the are are, are actually uh uh naturalized Chinese, and in 1900 those in Chinese history, East Asian history, will know it's the year of the Boxer Rebellion. Uh, In June 1900, um, the Japanese, uh, along with the Western powers, uh, cracked down on these Boxer rebels uh, who've attacked uh, foreign legations in Beijing. And while all the attention is on Beijing, Russia in the north and Japan in the south are thinking, well, can we take advantage of this time to perhaps occupy uh, other places? And so Russia uh, goes into uh, Manchuria uh, later that summer, and the Japanese see this, and there's no protest from other powers. And they say, well, uh, both the Navy and the Taiwan government general, they they uh, collaborate together to say, this is a perfect time to occupy Xiamen, the se- main central port, city in August. And the Taiwan government general uh, uh, colludes with local officials in, in Xiamen to intentionally burn down a Japanese Buddhist temple. And then they use it as a pretext foreshadowing what happens in Manchuria in 1931 and and you know uh, Marco Polo Bridge in 1937. We need to protect our overseas Taiwanese residents, our Japanese nationals, and then they land naval troops in Xiamen. Uh, but in the end, the Russians, British, and Americans land their naval troops, and so in the end, uh, Gotō Shinpei and Taiwan government general officials are saying, "Look, we should we should uh, uh, take advantage of this period to occupy and and uh, and uh, take control of Shaman. But Tokyo, uh, Itō Hirobumi, uh, and, and other general, they come and say, "We don't want a second Triple Intervention. We're going to withdraw the troops." So. In 1900s, a turning point where the Taiwan government general sees that the Tokyo government, army, and navy are not going to uh, uh, push for military intervention. So from there on out, they they turn to economic uh, and cultural uh, uh, intermediaries and say, "Look, let's use these Taiwanese uh, subjects, many who are naturalized Chinese. Um, we'll give them extraterritorial protections." And in turn, they can, you know, help build this overseas time as community, schools, hospitals, and also uh, potentially uh, make inroads economically uh, and, and maybe even politically.
1: Yeah, this is, um, you know, it's, it's one of those stories that I think, as you point out, the Boxer Rebellion has tended to sort of overshadow it in our thinking about what's happening in East Asian history there. Uh, but you make a really compelling case, I think, in in you know, chapter one, that this is, uh, you know, an understudied and kind of underrecognized part of what's happening in Taiwan, which, because that, you know, part of your thesis here is that Taiwan is the, uh, uh, you know, imperial gateway, the southern gateway, it's then uh, becomes, you know, a much more sort of pivotal moment, I think, in Japanese imperial history than certainly than I had thought of it as uh, before. Um, So uh, with that uh, background, let's jump into uh, chapter two, which is Taiwanese in South China's border zones. Um, Here you're using the example of the opium trade to show how the autonomy of the overseas Taiwanese was kind of a mixed blessing, uh, in your words, for Japan in the first several decades of the 20th century uh, the government general is pursuing uh, imperial excuse me imperial expansion its own sort of aggrandizement within within the empire there's this kind of you know internal politics about who's Controlling the expansion of empire, um, and also kind of wants to co-opt these overseas Taiwanese, um, as we've already begun to talk about. Um, things don't go to plan. Spoiler alert, I guess. Uh, so w- w- why is this? You know, w- what happens? Um, how did the? Uh, w- what, what did everybody expect to get out of this relationship, and what did they actually get out of it? Um, that's you know Japan. That's the government general. That's the overseas Taiwanese. Um, and in what ways does that? Kind of simultaneously both advance and undermine the imperial, you know, expansionism uh, that uh, the Taiwanese government general in particular is after. And what does this mean for you know the relations um, in uh, South China um, and for the overseas Taiwanese?
2: Great. So really, Chapter Two, uh, I think, along with Chapter One, is really showing how messy empire is and how uh, a lot of it is improvisation creativity, surprise, reaction, uh, really there isn't like a, a unilateral, you know, master plan coming from Tokyo. And as you said, look, the foreign ministry and the Taiwan government general, and then military services, uh, they're really jostling and negotiating, um, uh, who and, and, and which Japanese and Taiwanese should, should, uh, uh, you know, promote expansion. So, um, the the opium opium trade is very interesting, and and uh, uh, Peter Thilly's uh, new book also uh, covers some of this uh, ground uh, in a fascinating way of uh, how uh, lucrative it was for local Chinese uh, merchants and entrepreneurs at a time where. Uh, um, you know, uh, both the Chinese at first, the Qing and then the ROC, but also the international community is trying to crack down on the opium trade. So um, I, I give the example of a local Chinese in, in Xiamen, Wu Yunfu, uh, and he's an uh, opium uh, dealer. And like many of uh, other Overseas Taiwanese who are wealthy and uh, uh, dealing in opium, uh, he applies for it and is accepted as a Taiwanese subject. He nat- is naturalized by the Japanese in 1913, and really what that allowed gives him is a uh, he's exempt from paying Chinese taxes. Uh, uh, many local authorities, Chinese authorities, uh, profited from and 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 uh, benefited from uh, taxing opium and and other goods. Uh, but also, uh, if he got in a you know any tussle. Or, or um, you know, um, controversy uh, with Chinese officials or Chinese uh, other entrepreneurs, he had the backing, at least nominally, of the Japanese consulate and, and consular police. Uh, but this is where the f- Japanese Foreign Ministry consuls and Taiwan government in general sort of butt heads. Um, for the foreign ministry, they they the consul consular reports uh, sort of have the same complaints that their British and American counterparts have in Xiamen, which is you have all these fake or legal um, uh, 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 transactions and headaches, and and it's you know taking up a lot of resources. It's not worth a headache. Um, it's also giving Japan a bad name that the Taiwanese are uh, you know under the Japanese flag uh, you know were, um doing illicit. Trade, etc. Um, it's it's increasing anti-Japanese sentiment. So the foreign ministry wants to crack down, perhaps strip some of the Taiwanese status from some of these so, uh, uh, Chinese smugglers or opium dealers. But on the other hand, the Taiwan government general is saying, look, they might they, it might be hard to control them. The the opium that they're benefiting from is not going into the Japanese coffers, but they can be useful. In what ways? Well, uh, I said for the 1900 um, shaman incident, they could always be used as a pretext, right? Unruly Taiwanese, well, the Japanese have to go in and and help uh, secure uh, um, uh, uh, the you know shaman or the society that is, is in a state of anarchy because the Chinese can't do it themselves. So in 1916, uh, they increased the number of Taiwanese police assistants and Japanese police officials from Taiwan. So they're, they're using it to say, look, they're bad Taiwanese and we need to control them. And, and so it, it, it's this way of using it as a pretext and excuse. And this foreshadows, you know, chapter five, where um, in 1938, they uh, the Japanese occupy Xiamen and other South China port cities saying that, you know, they need to protect Tens of thousands of Taiwanese from from Chinese massacres, and therefore they're going to go in. So on the one hand, it's 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 a sort of uh, a proxy or pretext, and on the other hand, people like Wu Yunfu, uh, in exchange for protection, he's donating lots of money. Uh, uh, um, as 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 I said before, for schools and hospitals, other Taiwanese. Their dual Sino-Japanese nationality is, is a key. Um, Japanese and some foreign uh, other foreign nationals could not purchase land or make certain business deals uh, outside of the treaty ports, but the Japanese rely on Taiwanese to help build a, 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 a Taiwan-sponsored railway in Shanto or to uh, be an intermediary for the Bank of Taiwan and set up many Taiwan-based uh, businesses uh, and, and other cultural institutions. So in that sense, um, they're trying to make the most, despite the uh, occasional chaos that that the, these overseas Taiwanese um, uh, uh, bring up.
1: Right. And so then in Chapter 3, uh, which is Taiwanese in Southeast Asia, you take us out into Southeast Asia, where, again, it's sort of the government general, hoping to use the Taiwanese intermediaries to advance Japanese economic interests. And of course, this is, you know, despite, as you've said, the sort of improvisational nature of things, the chaos, the weird infighting that's going on. um, Nevertheless, there's this assumption that's underlying this project that the ethnic Cultural, linguistic affinities uh, of the overseas Taiwanese with local populations would make them effective ambassadors um, and even promoters of Japanese interests. Um, I have to say, it sounds a little naive, and I think it, from, from what uh, what I'm reading on, in the book, it seems like that might have been a, a fair instinct. So, you know, what, why didn't this work? And, and if any, what lessons does Japan draw from the failures of, and I mean, failure might be too strong a word, uh, you'll have to you know, weigh in on that, but from the failures uh, of this policy?
2: So, you know, this idea, again, I think this is what makes Taiwan and the overseas Taiwanese case um, distinct uh, from Koreans or Indians in that they're trying to use this ethnic Han Chinese skills, personnel to then expand in China and then other places uh, that have the Chinese diaspora, right? So the what they call the kakyo or the overseas Chinese, about 3 million in the 1900s and then 5 million by the 1930s. Um, so it, it, it's pretty idealistic and utopian. And, and as you said, it doesn't work as well on the ground. Uh, and the reason why I wanted to bring in Southeast Asia for Chapter 3 and Chapter 5 is um, one, for the comparative aspect, right? Uh, they're trying to use similar strategies in South China and Southeast Asia, but they have very different results. Um, the other is they really do see Southeast Asia, what they call the Nanyo, as an extension of South China. So the, the phrase is often nanxi Nanyo, or in Chinese, Nanzhi Nanyang, which later in the 1940s becomes the Nampo or nanfang or the southern regions. that. Uh, that you cannot really look at South China, Southeast Asia, and they're interconnected and this doesn't get a lot of focus on the Japan side, but of course, for uh, Chinese studies, overseas Chinese, sinophone, uh, um you know South China, Southeast Asia connections are so pivotal. So as naive as it might be for the Japanese to say, "Let's tap into this, they are pretty unique for trying to uh, use. What connections already exist in Taiwan, South China, and Southeast Asia? Now, now, what are the results? It, 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 they're pretty meager in Southeast Asia uh, prior to 1941, and and the reasons are, are 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 several. One is we understand why Chinese wanted Taiwanese nationality. Uh, in in Chapter One and Two, uh, right. It was not for patriotic reasons. They were not Japanese collaborators. It was very pragmatic, economic, legal incentives. Now. Do they have those legal economic sentences in Southeast Asia? Uh, There's very few of them or fewer. Um, As we know, most of Southeast Asia, with the exception of Siam, Thailand, uh, were under Western uh, colonial rule. And therefore, there was no extraterritorial privileges. Um, with the exception of Siam, where the Japanese, along with Western powers, ha- gain extraterritorial privileges, and that's where you have a lot of local uh, 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 overseas Chinese or Chinese residents um, naturalizing or wanting to naturalize. And so you have a, a, a burgeoning number in Siam. But ultimately, the foreign ministry uh, and, and its consular officials, they're not really sharing um, uh, jurisdiction over uh, uh, you know their their uh, Japanese residents, as they are with the Taiwan government general in South China. So they crack down on Siam, and also in Thailand, it's more of a Chaozhou Santo, uh, uh, eastern Guangdong. Uh, uh, um, diasporic uh, community. So the, the Hokkien Taiwanese dialects don't translate as well. And so uh, th- you know that's one reason why the population in Siam uh, remains low. The other interesting uh, region is the Dutch East Indies where in 1909, uh, the Dutch grant Japanese nationals honorary European status. So you have the Japanese having similar legal uh, uh, benefits that um, foreign Asians or Orientals, quote unquote, uh, like the Chinese uh, uh, didn't enjoy. So after 19, 1909, there is sort of an incentive or interest in Chinese to, to uh, obtain Taiwanese status. And you have one of the, the uh, uh, great Chinese Taiwanese uh, tea and sugar magnets called Guo Chunyang, who has like, I think, several British and Japanese or or Taiwanese uh, uh, subjecthood. Uh, And so there's a growing um, Taiwanese uh, community in the Dutch East Indies. But as we know, with the Philippines under U.S. control, there's not only anti-Chinese nationality laws, they consider any Taiwanese subject to be racially chinese, so you you could be a Japanese national, but you can't enter the philippines uh, uh unless it's certain uh, uh you know uh you have certain exemptions so um, there's the tiniest population of Taiwanese in the Philippines, but ironically, it becomes the largest number of Japanese. Uh, 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 you know, te- you know, tens of thousands of Japanese go as laborers to help help construct infrastructure and and grow grow agriculture in the Philippines. So you have different. It's very hard to generalize, but you have different cases in Southeast Asia. Uh, so one is the, you know, the 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 um, legal and colonial. Uh, um, System and structures different the other is even those who who uh, uh, um Make it out there. So there are about a thousand Taiwanese by the 1930s across Southeast Asia. You have the Manchuria Incident, 1931, 1937 war with Japan, and we we know from our you know survey courses about massive anti-Japanese boycotts and sentiment and activities. That's the time where you do not want to show your Japanese flag and say that you're Taiwanese. You're going to be you know harassed, killed, boycotted. Uh, so. This is a fascinating place where in South China, you wanted to even pretend to be Taiwanese for protection. Whereas in Southeast Asia, many Taiwanese, uh, uh, whether they have been naturalized or not, tried to stay under the radar and pass as a Fujianese, uh, you know, in, in Singapore, etc. Uh, and so that's why the numbers are, are really small in Southeast Asia compared to South China
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: So, in other words, you're saying it's cancel culture, right?
2: <laughs> Basically,
1: yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. So, so um, it, that, that's really interesting. And again, thinking about not only the the politics within the Japanese Empire, but between the different empires, and right, sort of think you know the the carving up of the world and who gets what privileges. Um, I thought that was interesting that that comes out with the uh, the Dutch East Indies. Um, so chapter four takes us into part two, uh, and this is the wartime gateway, part two, um, which takes us beyond 1937. And, and, and I appreciate that you talked about um, in, in the introduction of the podcast exactly why you thought it was important to sort of bridge this gap um, as we go into the years of wartime mobilization. Uh, so chapter four, Mobilizing for War, examines the problems which arose when Japan began sending these Taiwanese subjects to the front. In China, um, you observe early on that, quote, Japanese authorities worried about whether decades of colonial rule had sufficiently assimilated the Taiwanese such that they could be trusted with arms to fight for their Japanese, quote unquote, motherland but they went ahead with the decision anyway. Um, and so what was, you know, how, how was that decision made, right? Like what were the pluses and minuses? What were the kind of uh, decision tree there? What were they weighing? Because it seems to me overall, um, I mean, your conclusions about the Taiwanese reaction here uh, intersect, you know, of course, with your overall argument in the book uh, about the high degree of autonomy that many overseas Taiwanese are able to maintain. Um, also some of Sayaka Chitani's observations about the nature of, the relationships of colonial subjects to the japanese empire in particular so i wonder if you could comment maybe a little bit on that um, and also explain the japan side dilemma and how that reflected the messiness of wartime goals and policies vis-a-vis taiwan what made them different from you know other uh, parts of the empire um, and just as an example of this, you point out that while overall Japan pursues this very aggressive policy of assimilation, quote, Japanese officials often sought not to eradicate, but to take advantage of the Chineseness of their Taiwanese subjects, which is kind of, I guess, like in some sense, a continuation of um, earlier policy.
2: Great. So, yeah, I, I you know, I, I, definitely want to clarify and say there are several great works that that are looking at you know the transition from pre-war to wartime, uh, including Sayaka Tanimizu, Leo Ching's Tak Fujitani, and I, I'm very much in dialogue with what is changing uh, uh, after 1937 with wartime mobilization and then the Kominka or imperial subjectification slash Japanization. So I'll just make clear that for part two in the wartime period, the overseas Taiwanese um, category, uh, uh, the demographics start to shift, right? Um, In the pre-1937 period, like I said, a lot of them were naturalized or proxy Taiwanese, whereas... After 1937, there are many being mobilized and deployed physically going from the Taiwan island uh, to the warfront in South China, Southeast Asia. So, uh, and, and the pre war overseas Taiwanese will also come into play, and we can talk about them in uh, chapter five, but just to sort of clarify uh, uh, who these uh, Taiwanese are. And I think the um, you know I- intervention slash contribution I'm making is that um, despite having great studies on wartime mobilization, what is cominka, you know, and then what's the subjectivity of the, of these subjects, and and why are they going through? What's the motivation for them to volunteer? So-called volunteer? Are they coerced, etc. I think there are a few sort of cases on what happens to these soldiers or servicemen once they leave Korea, once they leave Taiwan. Right? Um, I will say that the 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 Chinese ness that was such an asset um, for uh, the Japanese in Taiwan in South China, Southeast Asia, becomes a double edged sword uh, in 1937. Um, you know, they many of these, especially young Taiwanese youth, have undergone Japanese language education. Their their you know formal official language is Japanese. They're bilingual, yet their ethnic linguistic ties to their Han you know ancestral homeland, the the sokoku or zuguo, um makes them suspicious, right? Uh, can we so 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 comparing it to the Korea case, which Tak Fujitani does does marvelously, Korea. Ironically, uh, so so you have a much higher population of uh, or percentage of Taiwanese males who are bilingual and understand Japanese. It's a much lower percentage in Korea among Korean males, which Joe Wang Yao and others have 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 uh, pointed out in comparing. And you have a much longer his longer history and 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 you know important history of anti-colonial activism in Manchuria, in Shanghai by Koreans, you know, Kim Il-sung and others uh, who become, you know, the, the the leaders in the post-war period. Uh, there's, there's constant uh, anxiety on the side of Japan about Korean anti-Japanese activism. And uh, conversely, in Taiwan, you never have like a March 1919 movement. Uh, and yet... Just the they, they take the ethno linguistic cultural ties to China seriously. They allow Koreans to serve as armed servicemen, uh, soldiers in 1938 and 1942, uh, but uh, for the army and navy, respectively. But it's four years later for Taiwan 1942 for the army and 1943 for the navy. Um, so then that's that that seems like they're not taking advantage of the sort of Chinese or Chinese language, uh, um. Uh, skills. Uh, is this a sense of, you know, they're banning uh, Chinese, lang- you know, because the, the conventional narrative is Chinese language is banned. They're just trying to make Taiwanese and Koreans into Japanese, you know, it's cultural, uh, uh, you know, genocide, etc. But uh, I, I push back. Um, uh, first of all, the, the majority of the Taiwan population uh, still cannot understand spoken Japanese. So to propagate the Greater East Asia War and how it's heroic that the Japanese are going into South China to liberate their Taiwanese uh, there and then later into Southeast Asia, they create these... Uh, Taiwanese dialect, the Hokkien dialect, and Mandarin um, language radio channels and stations to broadcast throughout Taiwan into South China and Southeast Asia. For So they're using spoken Chinese. And at the same time, they're not arming Taiwanese servicemen, but they're using thousands of Taiwanese as interpreters to go to the South China war front, to go as policemen, to then go as uh, 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 POW prison guards, because precisely because they can speak or, or learn quickly the, the, the Chinese dialects in South China. It's not... Smooth sailing, many will go to Hainan Island and the Hainan dialect is very different, but they can pick it up more easily, or they learn Mandarin before going to South China. Um and, and in in any case, um many of them are used uh, and this Chinese, these Chinese skills are being used uh, overseas. So that's where the sort of messiness and tensions and and improvisation comes in. And I think that this kind of gray, uh, you know, the the spectrum of of mobilization ha- has been sort of underplayed uh, thus far in the literature. Yeah,
1: that's really interesting. in thinking about the the ways that you know language and culture uh, functioned in these you know, often changing, unpredictable sorts of uh, colonial and imperial and also wartime situations. Um, so you uh, go on to uh, something you've you've already referenced once or twice here, uh, which you know, is about chapter five, that it's colonial liaisons in occupied South China. So after the escalation of war uh, with China in 37, uh, the military is recruiting these Taiwanese to help manage South China. And this is different, as you point out, from North and Central China, where the army is relying on essentially Japanese personnel trained in Manchuria, um, including by Montets of the South Manchurian Railroad uh, railway. I always want to say railroad. Anyway, uh, what were the consequences of this choice to um, use the uh, Taiwanese uh, as you know, sort of as defined by uh, by Japan, um, as opposed to? Uh, Japanese personnel, and what were the consequences, right? Not not just for Japan, but also for those personnel who were chosen, right? How did the and and, and one of the things that really struck me was that there are um, Taiwanese so-called comfort women, um, and how does that uh, you know ha- having them there on the, in those same areas, how does that affect the the relationship, right? What does it what does it do to trouble that relationship?
2: Definitely. So, you know, again, in our survey courses, uh, we talk about um, from 1937 to 1938, uh, Japan really um, uh, devastates and occupies north and central China, uh, the main cities, the railways. Uh, but by 1938, with the stalemate and, and, you know, Chiang Kai-shek not surrendering as quickly as the Japanese had hoped, um you have half a million Japanese overextended, a lack of manpower, you you know, just holding on to the the railways and major cities. Uh, so um, again, I, I'm not an expert on this, but there's some great Japanese language scholarship on, uh, it's not just Japanese personnel in North and Central China, there are Koreans uh, who are working as businessmen, working as uh, servicemen as well. Uh, but the Idea of uh, um, you know subjects who could speak the local language. Um, it, it makes the Taiwanese uh, uh, unique and different from you know Korean colonial uh, personnel in North and Central China. So uh, they're enlisted, and and again, many of these Taiwanese are are so called volunteers. And you know, I have uh, images in the uh, the book, and and I'm sure others have seen them of. Um, you know, volunteer applications where, uh, you know, they're they're very competitive. Where only a small percentage of, of Taiwanese are accepted. Now, you know, I and others have have made it clear that some. um There's a range of motivations. Some are genuinely patriotic. They've gone to Japanese school, language school. They want to show that they're just as capable as as the ethnic Japanese. So there's sort of a genuine patriotic, uh, 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 you know, for a certain percentage of these people. Uh, There's the pragmatic aspect of being paid two to three times the wages, Right um, so and patriotism and pragmatism are not mutually exclusive. there's, there's a spectrum, uh, but then also there are oral histories and memoirs that I, you know I, I've consulted where of course, they're being coerced or pressured by their Japanese teachers and policemen coming to their you know n- uh, you know neighborhoods. So there's a wide range why Taiwanese are, are enlisting. Uh, so what does it mean for uh, uh, many of uh, many of them? Well, on the ground uh, it's interesting especially from 37 to uh, uh, 41 where where they are technically civilians attaches of the military right and the cover of my book has a, a, a image of a Taiwanese translator. He has a sword, uh, but he does not have the same, uh, um, you know, uh, rifles and, and, and weaponry of his Japanese counterparts. And he has a, uh, white band on his, uh, armband that says Tsu for Tsu Yaku or military interpreter. And he's interpreting, uh, and interrogating basically this Chinese POW with his hands behind his back, uh, on the left side. So, um, you know, one of the anecdotes that I I, I, I draw on from you know oral histories and memoirs is uh, uh, how these Taiwanese military uh, interpreters felt. On the one hand they were paid more than actually some of their Japanese soldier counterparts. So low-ranking Japanese soldiers are higher in status but making less money. And therefore, these Taiwanese interpreters become an object of you know envy or hostility where they're saying, look, you're doing safer work and you're just a Taiwanese, yet you're making more money than us. Uh, also, there is this ch- ethno-Chinese uh, discrimination of calling them chankuro or Chinamen or chinks or whatever and saying, look, these Taiwanese can't be fully trusted. Uh, and it goes back to this idea that it's because they're, they're ethnically and ancestrally Chinese. Uh, and on the other hand, um, we can foreshadow how what's going to happen to these Taiwanese in 1945 when the uh, Empire Falls, they're the ones interfacing the most with Chinese POWs, overseeing their forced labor, uh, you know, distributing medicine and food and talking to these Chinese. So they become also the, the ones whose names and faces the Chinese remember the most. Right and there's this hostility of you guys are Chinese collaborators, Japanese co- collaborators, you know, uh, uh, taking advantage of power, uh, etc. So again, they're they're um, this is not to absolve them of any autonomy or agency or responsibility, but they are in between the Japanese and Chinese. Now the Taiwanese comfort women. I'll just pause and say that um women you know uh uh do not make a big appearance in the book until chapter 5 and 6 and and one group of women are uh uh the Taiwanese nurse assistants and they're the you know the the closest in terms of ca- uh, counterparts to their male Han Taiwanese uh servicemen uh in that many of them volunteer to assist in the South China war front, uh, assist Japanese nurses who will be ranked higher and paid more uh, with a different, you know, hat, uh, a nurse hat. They're going to wear the same nursing uniforms, but with a different hat to hat color to um, signify their, their second class status. Um, Now, again, there's a range of uh, the same range of uh, motivations, Uh, pay, patriotism, pressure, etc. But there is a similarity where they're second class, but supervising Chinese nurse assistants or Chinese civilian personnel. The Taiwanese comfort women, which have not gotten as much uh, uh, you know, publicity, unfortunately, as, as their Korean counterparts, I mean, it is just equal, equally as tragic in that those interviewed and, and the documentation we have from their memoirs in the 90s and, and and oral testimonies are that the majority of them were tricked. They thought they were signing up to be a nurse assistant or signing up for work in a restaurant in South China or elsewhere, Japan. Uh, others were just, you know, kidnapped or coerced to, to become military sex slaves in these comfort uh, 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 stations. And And... What what is but what does parallel their male, you know, uh, Taiwanese counterparts is that it's a totally different situation. Yet the Japanese um, signify and and place them uh, also as second class imperialists in the comfort women hierarchy, where Japanese comfort women are are you know in in documents supposed to be paid uh, uh, you know about. Two thirds more than Korean and Taiwanese cover women, whose wages are second, and then below them are Chinese, and then below them are local Southeast Asian cover women. Now, we of course know that many of these were never, many of these wages never uh, uh, were remitted, and we have all kinds of, you know, uh, uh, problems with compensation. Uh, but the fact that they would be identified as second class uh compared to other comfort women, this of course doesn't come up in 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 the memoirs and in and in the the uh, oral testimonies, but I think that should be noted uh the last thing is that this story of comfort women uh timings government is not just a Japanese victimizer versus the Taiwanese or Chinese victim, like in Korea, and this has gotten a lot of pushback, um, uh, uh, is is talking about Korean male complicity and then Taiwanese male complicity. There are, you know, the oral uh, uh, testimonies show that, um, uh, you know, Taiwanese, there were Taiwanese male uh, comfort women recruiters and also comfort station managers, right? And even Taiwanese servicemen have admitted and talked about in their memoirs and oral histories how they made use of these comfort stations, right? So, I, again, I, I just wanted to show that, you know, the, the range of, of agents here, it's not just a Japanese verse uh, when it comes to gender, power, and exploitation,
1: yeah, thank you for sort of diving into that because it is complicated and it deserves the sort of time that, that you gave to it there. Um, so we're, we're nearing the uh, last chapter now, which is Chapter 6, Advancing into the Southern Region. So as we've been talking about, you know, from the early 1930s, um, already uh, the government general uh, in Taiwan had wanted to make the island an administrative, economic and strategic center uh, for this, you know, imperial southern advance um and uh you know measures during that decade during the 1930s continued to sort of contribute to uh taiwan being and becoming even more of an important imperial base um and this the pacific war obviously uh contributes to that as well from 1941 onward and in this context the taiwanese are mobilized to help japan manage these diverse populations in southeast asia Um, so taiwanese uh you observe that uh, Taiwan's gateway imperialism resulted in the Taiwanese occupying positions on the Southern war fronts that were at once empowering and vulnerable, which you've already talked about a little bit. And I really do like the um, the, the fact that you brought up the book cover, right? Because it's, it's a nice symbolic image of that. Um, they, they're, you know, in some ways, Japanese, in some ways, second class imperialists, in some ways, neither, you know, both end. Um, so what Specifically, kind of privileges and power did they have, and what kind of challenges did they face um, in trying to, you know, manage their own lives within these internal hierarchies, uh, as well as the relationship with uh, Southeast Asians that they were supposed to be helping and managing.
2: Okay, great. So um, before I, you know, uh, dive into sort of the the uh, experience of the Taiwanese in in the Southeast Asian warfront, I I just want to note that sort of the um, colonial government, the Taiwan government general and, and Japanese, you know, intra-imperial rivalry between the government general and the Navy Army foreign ministry sort of uh, is in the book, but sort of uh, hasn't made it made it in, in our, in our uh, back, back and forth. So uh, I just want to say that both for Chapter 5 and Chapter 6, It was the ambition of the Taiwan government general once southern Chinese uh, uh, coastal cities are um, uh, occupied, as well as the South China Sea islands of the Spratly Islands, which also uh, um, comes up in in Paul Kreitman's forthcoming book of Japan's uh, uh, ocean borderlands. Once you have the uh, uh, growing occupied regions in South China and the South China Seas, the Taiwan government general Proposes strongly in 38 and 39, before the uh, Pacific War, they proposed to Tokyo and, and the military can the Taiwan government general become the southern region's government general and unite the southern region's colonies, meaning not just Taiwan and then the South China occupied regions and the S- South China Sea islands, but also Micronesia, so that. There would be some cohesion and unified uh, vision and and uh, policy over these regions. Now, in the end, the army and navy wanted uh, uh, did, did not decide to defer or or delegate uh, administrative control to the Taiwan government general. But chapter Five shows that uh, they they recruit and enlist high ranking Taiwan government generals to be the top ranking uh, uh, Japanese um, civilian officials in Xiamen, Fuzhou, and Shanto. So the the idea of these, you know uh, Chinese public governments throughout China, it, it looks different. Um, in South China, a because the Japanese personnel is coming from Taiwan, and then a lot of the Chinese, so-called Chinese puppet governments, are are um, uh, uh, um, filled by Taiwanese positions, right? Um, and then in, in in terms of Chapter 6 in the Southeast Asia part, uh, Micronesia was too important for the Navy in in its preparations for, you know, the Asia-Pacific War to sort of give to Taiwan. But interestingly, Spratly Islands, which are very far away from Taiwan, they become uh, uh, administratively part of Kaohsiung, or Takao, the southernmost prefecture and, and city in Taiwan. So the, the government general, uh, uh, Ambitions are sort of halted and, and they don't get complete administrative control, but it is in terms of Japanese and Taiwanese personnel that they can enlist, recruit, and mobilize where they are then uh, contributing to the, the war front. Uh we we've gone over some of the motivations and and the you know challenges that Taiwanese personnel face in South China. So they're very similar in Southeast Asia, but I'll note some of the differences. So similarities is there's by you know by 1930s 40s 5 to 6 million overseas chinese and uh, uh, when Japan occupies places, especially like Singapore, with a large uh, Chinese diasporic population that speaks f- Fujian dialects, um, Taiwanese become uh, major interpreters and and go-betweens to try to recruit and uh, uh, enlist money support from uh, uh, overseas Chinese elites. Um, you also have... Uh, Hundreds of thousands of Allied POWs that Sarah Kovner has, uh, uh, you know, discussed extensively in her book, uh, and she notes of some Korean POW guards. Uh, there are thousands of Taiwanese um, POW uh, prison guards that are now overseeing um, not just, you know, ethnic Chinese, but then Anglo-American, Dutch, Australian uh, POWs, uh, and those. Many of them, uh, in over a hundred, will be charged as BC war criminals after 1945 for. War crimes uh, in terms of executing, torturing um, war, uh, POWs under the Geneva C- Convention, which we can talk about for the epilogue and post-war period. The, the Taiwanese p- p- uh, prison guards say that at the time they had no idea; they 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 didn't know about these rules. Uh, lastly, the indigenous Taiwanese population uh, makes its way into Chapter Six. They 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 don't really show up prior to uh, uh, Chapter Six. But you have indigenous families, volunteers, an estimated 5,000 that are recruited and mobilized to uh, New Guinea, the Philippines. And the rationale behind that is also a a sort of uh, ethno-anthropological rationale, meaning Uh, Japanese uh, colonial officials and military officials believe that indigenous Taiwanese are used to mountainous jungle terrain in eastern Taiwan and would be really useful and helpful for clearing, you know, the terrain, uh, making roads and being less susceptible to malaria, etc. And that's one of the rationales of, of, you know, the, you know... uh, Uh, transforming what used to be called savages into, you know, loyal, patriotic, indigenous, you know, model Japanese uh, uh, patriots. Uh, And and also there is this ethno-linguistic aspect of the assumption or, or, you know, studies that the Austronesian languages that the Taiwanese tribes speak are related to or close to those in the Philippines and other parts of the South Pacific, and there are memoirs and oral testimonies that uh, verify and corroborate how many of these indigenous Taiwanese picked up the local tribal languages and were able to interpret between uh, uh, tribes and and the Japanese. Um, so that's sort of the sort of the differences, the key differences that I see. Um, though, of course, even when I'm talking about some sort of the second-class imperialist positions of power and privileges, um, it is you know, ultimately very tragic uh, uh, the steep costs of, of warfare, right? There are about 200,000 uh, Han and indigenous Taiwanese servicemen and an, uh, over uh, one-tenth or 30,000 30, of them uh, die. And, and you have Han and indigenous Taiwanese sent on you know, the last year kamikaze sort of, uh, attacks in the Philippines. So, um, you know, the you, whatever the reasons and motivations for many of these people volunteering or, or enlisting, uh, the re- results were equally devastating as, as they were for the Japanese and, you know, millions of Asians across the region.
1: Yeah, and it, uh, by winding up uh, there, you've taken us very nicely to the epilogue, uh, which it really addresses the sort of ongoing, um, you know, complication of the category of what you know, the sort of definition of Taiwanese, um, after uh, the war, so you write that the category of the Taiwanese, which had been ambiguous under Japanese rule, remained highly contested throughout the early post-war period, um, at least up to the end of the the occupy you the know, the Allied occupation of of mainland Japan itself. Um, so, I, I mean, I think it might it might be obvious at some level why. That remains a complicated thing, but I wonder if you could flesh that out a little bit for us um, and then explain sort of how that actually gets resolved, because in some ways that's actually the more interesting part of the story right? And, and sort of surprising.
2: No, definitely, and and it really is a complicated story where an epilogue is not going to do justice to it, but I really wanted to sort of trace uh, what happened to these Taiwanese in South China, Southeast Asia, and Taiwan. Uh, again, uh, hopefully, a whole book can can be written about uh, uh, the aftermath of of empire and you know there have been articles and chapters that that are useful for this. Um, so, you know, there there are uh, anecdotes of Taiwanese uh, under Japanese rule who say that you know they were Japanese until 1945, and then after August 1945, they became Chinese, meaning Chinese of the ROC Republic of China under uh, the Kuomintang or in Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, but you know, it's this change overnight uh, uh, from being part of the defeated Japanese to now being part of the victorious ROC, uh, is not as smooth, unfortunately for the Taiwanese for several years. And I'll take the case of, of South China, Southeast Asia, sort of separately in South China, you have estimated 40,000 Taiwanese servicemen and civilians and, um, as I was saying, you you have you have records of retaliation, you know, revenge killings, um, uh, understandably by Chinese uh, on the ground. Uh, but one of Chiang Kai-shek's sort of um, uh, policies here was, and and dilemmas is: should these Taiwanese, who are now ROC Chinese nationals, should they be uh, um, tried? If for any kind of you know wartime atrocities, as Hanjin or Han traders, you know Chinese Han traders, or should be tried, the, should they be sentenced and tried as Japanese nationals, so the nationality that they were at the time of their 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 wartime actions? And so initially in forty-five to forty-six, Hanjin or Han trader uh, it, uh, refers to anybody who's ethnically Han, whether or not they were a Chinese or foreign national. So many uh, Taiwanese in South China are. are arrested, and interned as uh, uh, put suspected um, Han traders. But by 1946, Chiang Kai-shek ma- makes the declaration that uh, um, the Taiwanese will not be tried as Han traders if they were to be tried, they would be tried as Japanese war criminals. And ultimately, you have 58 uh, tried by the RLC as B.C. war criminals, uh, roughly a tenth of the uh, 500 Japanese uh, uh, B.C. war criminals, B.C. meaning minor, so-called minor war cr- cr- criminals, uh, as opposed to the Class A war criminals, the 25 uh, uh, top leading, you know, uh, 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 Leaders it tried in the Tokyo um, war crimes trials, and what happens to the rest of the forty thousand? There's very little paper trail, uh, but they are pretty much released and let go. Uh, part of this idea that uh, Chiang Kai-shek wants to reincorporate the new Taiwanese population and and not punish them. Uh, uh, but also, you know, my my uh, uh, educated guess is that many of them take on Chinese names you know, move to other parts of China or go back to Taiwan and take different names and sort of go under the radar because they don't want to uh, be tarnished with this this idea of wartime collaboration or, 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 you know, atrocities. In Southeast Asia, the case is a little different where they're not under ROC control or Chinese control, even though the ROC and Chiang Kai-shek want to control the Taiwanese population. There's about 60,000 in 1945, and they will are intern and then will be sentenced to in uh, allied military courts re- uh, respective courts dutch australian british american across uh, southeast asia which is different from the Tokyo war crimes trials, which is the subject of Yuma Todani's first book. Her second book looks at these allied military uh, uh, court trials across Southeast Asia, and that's where Taiwanese will be uh, um, tried, and you have uh, roughly uh, you know, uh, over 100 uh, who will be sentenced. Some will be executed, um, uh, and, and then... Um, some of their sentences will be you know shortened, and they'll go to Sugamo like other japanese uh uh war criminals so the r o c and k m t first you know there there's um r o c uh foreign ministry foreign office uh, documents stating that they ask the allied military courts to release them and treat these Taiwanese as regular overseas Chinese or regular ROC nationals. But in the end, the allied military courts and military powers do not recognize them as ROC nationals until 1952, which Nathan just talked about as a turning point when the ROC in Japan signed the Sino-Japanese peace treaty, uh, which formally uh, um, allows other countries to recognize uh, former Taiwanese subjects to be Chinese ROC nationals. So it really is a sort of nationality, uh, you know, puzzle and chaos, uh, not only throughout the pre-war and wartime period, but especially after the post-war period.
1: Yeah, I mean, as you've suggested and started to lay out there, there probably is a whole book in there at some point. Um, and, you know, maybe we'll uh, get you back on here uh, for that in a couple of years. But uh, for now, I just wanted to thank you for uh, spending the time with us. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we, we hope to have you back soon.
2: Well, thanks so much for having me, Nathan, and, and really appreciate your service to the field. And, and I'm a big fan of the podcast. So thanks again. Thanks a lot. Take care.